We are starting a new series this morning. I'm excited about it, which makes me also um, slightly terrified about this. Because uh, what I've learned over time is I'm an odd duck. I already know that. Um, if you go look at uh, the U.S., I represent 2% of the population in the U.S. And most of the people who have the personality that I do are behind the scenes doing something in a quiet room in a dark space. They don't do this. So sometimes when I like something, it means everybody else is going to hate it. And that, that um, frightens me a little because the stuff that I want to bring to you over the next seven weeks, one of the longest series we've ever done. So it's kind of risky that we're going to take this much time. But I want to do it because I think what's here is foundational. See, if you have any interest in adjusting your course toward Christ, which is what we do around here, we're looking for things that help us adjust our course toward Christ, then this stuff that we're going to talk about is going to be foundational to you doing that. And that's, that's why I'm excited about it. We're actually going to go back to early Genesis, and we're going to spend the whole seven weeks in one section of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, the reason I'm excited about it is maybe, I don't know, I got bit by the bug a long time ago, 20-some years ago, uh, with this cultural stuff that colored the Scriptures, that gave deeper meaning and purpose to it. And I, I've spent a lot of time um, kind of diving into that sort of thing. I've gone to Israel, I've gone to Italy, just so I can find a way to talk to you about these scriptures in a way that the cultural context makes sense and the truth comes alive for you. Recently, I, I came across some material that kind of pushed me over the edge in this section of scripture. So I, I got to give a lot of credit to the Bema podcast and they referenced a Jewish rabbi by the name of David Froman. And I've been reading his stuff and he's Jewish, which means we're not going to agree on everything. But here's the deal. When a Jewish rabbi says, I believe what motivated God to write the Torah was love, I think we're going to probably find some common ground. And I've used um, a lot of his insights to help me get uh, to some of the stuff that we're going to pull out for this series that I think is going to be really helpful, um, that I'm excited about. In order for us to uh, do this well, I need to make you aware of some assumptions I've made. They're, they're going to be in the background on all seven weeks. I'm only going to cover them this week, uh, and I'm going to go through them really fast. But these are just things that I believe. And, um, and if you don't, we're probably not going to come up to the same conclusions on the stuff that we're talking about here. So here's my first assumption. I believe what we're about to read was written thousands of years ago to a culture that wasn't like us. And if that happened, and if I believe they're that old, then I think that they would also have the characteristics of literature that would have been written during that time, which I do. I think that's happened. And it makes sense to pay attention to some of that. Uh, the second thing that I believe, I believe the Torah was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. I think it was written on a stone. That tablet would eventually go into the Ark of the Covenant for a while. It was passed down orally for hundreds of years. And then people started writing it down around the time of David. And there may have been different authors who put it to pen and got it down, but God started this. And I think what you're going to see is there's so much intricacy. So, this is so incredibly written that a master had to do this. And I think... God the master 
was behind this. Uh, Three, I think the scriptures in this case talk about truth. And instantly that causes some issues. Because I'm talking to a group of people who've been influenced by Greek culture. We're very logic driven. We're rational. I'm, I'm happy that we're rational. I think that's really good. Right? But this is not how they thought about it back then. So for us, we think learning is about finding statements and facts and, and learning those statements and facts. And when we've learned those, we're good. But in ancient mind had a different way of learning. They believed that how you learned was to discover something. And the discovery of that meant that you would have to dig in and process it. It's why the scriptures are full of metaphors, images, and pictures. Because they would write them that way so that you would have to wrestle with it to come up with the idea. Because when you discovered something, that was important. And not only did they they do it that way, sometimes they did it with their literature. They would actually take an idea that they wanted you to find and they would bury it. They would hide it in the text, but they would leave clues that it was there. And you were supposed to stumble across those clues and that would cause you to dig in and ask questions and you would search. And when you found that, that aha moment was learning. And we're going to find that in Genesis 1 through 11, this literature technique was used often. There are things hidden there for us to discover. Which brings me to the fourth assumption. They assumed that when you would go and start thinking about these oral traditions that they had, or eventually the text that would be written down, that you would approach it from a basis of, what questions will this raise for me? In fact, the more questions I have, it shows the more interest I had in God. And so they expected you, they would actually write problems on purpose into the text that would cause you to trip over them so that you would ask questions like, why is it this way? Why did, how is this outcome possible? Why is all of that was expected? It's hard because we as Westerners read to get the answer. We're reading and we expect the answer when we're done. They were reading expecting to find more questions that would eventually lead them to the answers that they were looking for. So all of this is all part of it. Just to help you understand how this colors, how these assumptions color everything, let me give you just one prime example of how they went about searching this stuff for truth. When we look for truth, we're looking for things that we can say, here's the statement that I can use to help me determine what's right and wrong. I love that. I'm from, a, I'm from a Greek culture. I'd like to know what's right and what's wrong, especially in terms of how I relate with God, right? What's right, what's wrong? These people, they wanted to discover truth because they wanted to understand how to relate to each other, and they wanted to understand how to relate to God. They had, they had societies that were built where the community was more important than the individual. This is something that we don't fathom. Like if somebody doesn't like it in our family, what what do we say? Tough, they can live with it. You would not do that in this ancient culture. You, you You would harm yourself, do harm to yourself for the benefit of the whole. And it's how they lived. And so they were really interested in how in the world Do I relate with each other? 
And what's fascinating is Genesis 1 through 11 is full of God helping people learn to relate to each other and to him. Why is this important? Well, let's go back and understand exactly when this is written. The nation of Israel has been freed from slavery 400 years. They're out in the Sinai Desert. And here's some things that you probably could count on. If you've been held by a group of people for 400 years, and that group of people has said, what's allowed us to do this is that we have powerful gods on our side, you would have concluded for 400 years that they were right. They had powerful gods. But now suddenly... Your God has come along, God of your fathers, that you thought maybe had forgotten you. And you are now free in the desert. And the thought must have crossed your mind, this is a more powerful God than the Egyptian gods. This could be good or this could be terrifying. Because the experience they had with the Egyptian gods is one that was built on fear. And it was one that was, if something was wrong, you would pay any price to make that God happy. You would go so far in those cultures to sacrifice a kid to appease a God if that's what it took. And now we're serving one that's more powerful? What is he going to demand from us? This could be good. Or this could be bad. So God immediately starts to set out. And help them relate to who he is. Now he does this initially by providing them three pictures in the first three verses. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 provide three different pictures that they can wrestle with so that they can start to get an idea of who this God is. So what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's a creator God. So immediately, the stage is set that everything you see, everything that's here... I was involved with. That's how powerful I am. I made it all. I create. I'm the creator God. And everything you see, I had something to do with. In the second verse, he goes down, and we'll talk about the formless and void part of this in in weeks ahead. But then he says, and the spirit of God hovered over that, right? And God was spirit. He's a creator God who's spirit. In other words, all of those idols that you saw In Egypt, those calves that you saw, those stone things that people carved out, don't do that with me. I'm spirit. I'm not not held in any of those things. I'm bigger than that. And he's helping them try to find a way to relate. And then in verse 3, he says, and God said, he says, let there be light, and there was light. But God said, I'm telling you, that's huge. God would actually speak. He would actually tell you what he wanted. He would actually give instructions. He would give some guidance. He would give wisdom. He's going to actually communicate with us. In Egypt, when there was a drought, you had to guess. What did we do wrong? What do we have to sacrifice? What do we have to do now? You would read the signs. You would make up all kinds of stuff to try to appease that God because you have no idea what you're up against. And that God was silent, but you knew he was angry, and so you did what you had to do. But not this God. He's going to speak. And so right away, right away, 
they're given these images and pictures to start wrestling with as to what does that mean if God's going to speak. By the way, this is going to be really important in Genesis 2 and 3, the fact that God speaks. It's going to become a central issue uh, that's going to cause problems. So, um, so we see this being set. Now, here's what gets interesting. As soon as you start reading down into the text, you start running into problems. Things that are supposed to trip you up. You're like, what? How can that be? Why is it that way? I don't understand. Let me give you a few examples. So on day one, God says, let there be light. And then we find out later on day four that God creates the sun and the stars. Where did the light come from that he created in the first place? Did he just create the idea of light? Did he create a light bulb? I mean, how? You have these questions, right? Day three, the plants are created. But day four, the sun comes. But the plants kind of need the sun to grow, so how are the plants created before the sun? These are supposed to be there to cause you to say, what is happening here? For two reasons. One, you're supposed to trip over these with questions that will pull you into the text. The second thing that it could do for you is it could cause you to look for patterns. Patterns were really important. If you found a pattern, you might be looking at a very specific type of literature that had a different meaning and purpose, and you had to know that. And so the, the writer would leave you clues in there so that you would trip over them, eventually find the pattern and go, oh, I know what I'm dealing with now. Now I've got to find a way to work back and find the thing that they want me to understand here. So, so when you run into these kind of problems, they were on purpose. They were meant for you to go, what is happening? Why? Tell me about this, God, and there would be more discussion. Let me give you another example before we move on. This is at the end of verse 5. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. When does your day start? Why do you think it would be any different for a group of people who didn't have electricity? They rose with the sun. When the sun went down, they stopped working and went home. There was no other way to do it. Their whole lives were governed by when the sun came up and when the sun came down. So why in the world is God talking about a day starting in the evening and ending in the morning. Now, now listen, this will come to make sense. It's actually going to be really beautiful and cool, but it's supposed to start by bothering you. You're supposed to read that and go, that's kind of irritating. Why did he say it that way? And it's supposed to lead somewhere. Now, here's the thing. We said it could raise questions, which it raises a lot of questions, but would also cause us to look for patterns. Ooh, there are patterns. Let me go for it. I'm going to go fast, okay? The first three days mirror the second three days. You're going to find out that God um, separates the first three days and then fills those days the next three days, and they're corresponding mirrors. God has three descriptions for himself as creator. Creator, spirit, what's the last one? I forgot. Speaks, thanks. 
it's old. Help me, okay? I wasn't kidding. I really forgot. Okay. Bara, spirit, which is said in verse 2, shows up three times. There's patterns of seven. The first verse has seven words. The second verse has 14 words. The word earth is used 21 times. The word God is used 35 times. It was so seven times. God saw seven times. Creation was good seven times. Rabbis will tell you if you find patterns of three and seven, you should look for patterns of ten. Say to make, says to make ten times. According to its kind, ten times. And God said ten times. Three to people, seven to creatures. Let there be three times. Three to the heavens, seven to the earth. What does this tell you? Well, when there's that many patterns... It gives you a clue that you're dealing with a poem. And as soon as you find the mirroring, those first three days, mirroring the other three days, it might tell you that you have something bigger on your hands. It might tell you you have a form of literature that was written during that day that was unique. It's called a chiasm. Can we go ahead and put that word up? Chiasm. Can you say that with me? Chiasm? Chiasm? Okay. Um, this was a type of writing that they did that was intentional, where they would take and bury a truth in the middle of this thing, and they would create a pattern around it where you were supposed to find the pattern because there was enough stuff there that caused you to go, what is going on? And eventually you would find the pattern, and it would lead you somewhere. Why? Because they believed discovery was learning. So they would hide these things. Let me show you this pattern's. Okay, let's bring up the next slide. Uh, the patterns would happen A, B, C, A, B, C. And in um, Genesis, you see three through five, he talks about separating, separating the light and the dark. He separated the land and the, um, or the water and the sky, right? And then down here, the land and the water. And then on the next part, he starts filling those. And you see that in a corresponding thing. And as soon as you would see this, you would know there's a chiasm going on. But what's fascinating about this is it has both. It has ABC and CBA as well. Because when you look at the literature and the length of it, 3 through 5 and 24 through 25 match each other. And they match each other over here. And so the length is also a chiasm. It's double. That's why I'm telling you, this is a master who did this. This, this, is, this is God putting stuff down for people to dig into and search. He's trying to capture their attention, and so he's, he's doing this. Why? Why is it important to know if you've got a chiasm on your hands? Well, two things. One, there's a hidden thing. We're going to talk about that. But the other thing that you could use a chiasm for is to break the pattern. If you have a pattern and you break it, you can make something like a flashing neon light for somebody to see. Which, by the way... This chiasm ends at Genesis 25, but how many verses are in Genesis 1? 31. So what in the world happens in verses 26 through 31? You guys know? Put up 26. God talks about creating mankind, and in verse 27, he makes mankind in his image. And then he spends the rest of the time talking about the dominion that he would give over the sky and the birds and the air and all. And mankind has a special place in his creation. 
And it's like a sticking out, a sore thumb in the text when it's written this way. The literature alone makes it go, whoa, you got to pay attention to this. We are a special creation of God. Keep in mind, he's talking to a group of slaves who would have felt worthless. And yet, he says, no, 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 no. You're special to me. You're created in my image. I've given you a unique place in my creation. You have things to do that are of value. This is huge. This is huge. And so this chiasm, again, throws up this flag for these people to understand, hey, God has put us in a special place in this creation. Can you believe that? And there would have been conversations about what it, what it meant to be in God's image and what kind of responsibility that came with. There would have been all kinds of good conversations because it was put on this flashing light because of how it was written with illiteracy, right? Now there's more. There's a second reason why you would um, possibly pay attention to this. Uh, let's go ahead and bring up the next slide with the bookends, if you could, okay? So obviously, these are bookends. This is my artwork. I'm now an art major. Um, see, obviously. And any time that you would find a chiasm, for it to be defined, there'll be bookends. There'll be a starting and an ending place. And those are meant to help you define the section of Scripture that you now have to narrow down because there's something in the middle that was placed there for you to discover that would give you depth and understanding to the rest of the text that was there. And so let's see if we can find the bookends. All right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he had rested from all the work of creating that he had done. How did Genesis 1 open? God created heaven and the earth. And how does it close right here? God rests from creating. We have the bookends. Now here's where this is a little difficult. Uh, when this stuff gets translated into English, sometimes a Jewish word will end up being a phrase to help us understand what's being said. And so this stuff gets skewed and it's a little harder to find, but in the Hebrew, it's there. And what they would do is they would take and they would start counting. When they would find the bookends, they would find the pattern, they would do that, and they would start going and they would find the center of this thing. And when they find the center of this thing, they found a word, Moad. Wow. It change your life? Right? I mean, okay, maybe we should get it defined. It means seasons. Does that help anymore? Right? It doesn't. My, uh, my text actually translates it um, something times, sacred times. Some of them translate it sacred seasons. And you're wondering what in the world is going on here? But maybe this will help. Moad was one of four words that Jewish people used to describe Sabbath. It was their day of rest. 
And the question is, why? Why would God bury in the middle of this text the idea of Sabbath? I, I don't know about you. When I grew up, um, my family practiced something that they called Sabbath. And what I, my experience with it was basically, it was a list of things you could or couldn't do. And everything that was fun, you couldn't do. And everything that wasn't fun, you should have been doing, right? Uh, we were forced to take naps that day. Uh, has any, did anybody have any of that same experience? My friends would ask me, yeah, a few of you, right? Uh, my friends would ask me to come and play some football with them, and I was told, no, that's not Sabbath activity. What was Sabbath activity? Going to church in the morning and the evening and sleeping during the day. And even on Super Bowl Sunday, we went to church, right? You're like, what is happening here? Sabbath is how it was explained to me. This is Sabbath. So as I got older, honestly, it did not connect with me at all. And I, I've taught on Sabbath. You cannot read the scriptures. It's in the Big Ten, right? You've got to take a day of rest. It's really important. And it's obvious that rest in our lives is important. But what I would do on that day is just make sure I had a day off if I was doing something like that. I had missed the motivation and the purpose. I think I've taught at times that the Sabbath was about God um, putting on display our need for rest because he didn't need to rest. Right? I've changed my view. I believe God needed to rest. Not because he was tired from the work. I believe he needed to rest because it was in his character and nature to do so. Just like it was in his character and nature to love, to love righteousness, to love justice. It's a part of who he is and so he acts based on his nature. And he rested because it's who he was. Now, that, that wasn't my experience growing up, and it wasn't how I looked at it. And so as I started to get into the text, I started wondering why, why, God, would you create this as a central point of one of the first things that you would want this group of people to understand and know? And it has a lot to do with that group of people, but here's the thing. I don't think we're much different. Let me, let me explain. God is talking to a group of ex-slaves. It's all they've known. When did a slave work? From sunup to sundown. How many days did a slave work? Seven days a week. They did not have time off. Were there national holidays? We don't know. If they were, they would have been for... Egyptian gods where everything would have calmed down and you would have given that, that rest day praise to this Ra or whoever. But otherwise, your whole life was wrapped up in your work and it was serious. See, there was quotas to be made. And if you didn't get your quota done, there was a chance that you could be beaten. And if you were injured and beaten, you couldn't get your quota done, you could end up dead. And if you ended up dead, who was going to take care of your family? Now they were at risk. Your work was everything to you. 
And it defined your worth and your value. That for 400 years, a people had been defined by their ability to produce stuff for the Egyptians. And all of a sudden, God comes to them and says, I don't value you based on what you produce. I love you for you. Now listen, I don't think it's much different for us. If you were to, if you were to sit across the table and ask somebody the question, who are you? They would give you what they do. They would tell you how much they've amassed. They would give you an account of their social status. Some people will tell you the number of likes that they're getting online, right? Look at my followers. This is what I've done. This is what I do. This is, this is who I am. Who I am is what I do. And we've become enslaved to this idea of production. What we produce defines us. Now here, we actually did a talk, a whole series on work and the value of work. I think it's incredibly important. But here's the, here's the other side of this that I've personally experienced. See, I've gone to extremes on this, and I've been a workaholic at times, which means I'm willing to do that and sacrifice everything else in my life for the sake of that work. And here's what I've discovered about that. See, when you're willing to let production become that important in your life, the stuff that you do, it will start to give you your worth and your value. And what you will return to it is devotion. You'll be devoted to that thing that gives you your worth and your value. And God had a whole group of people who had been used to producing, to, to define who they were. And he said, here, I've got a different idea. I want you to stop and rest. And when you do, I want you to remember that I love you for you. Now, you'll never hear me say, I've never said, I can't, I, I can't think of a time where I haven't, I don't think I ever will, that your actions don't matter, that what you do doesn't matter. I don't believe that for a second. I think it does matter. But this matters more. I think you need to hear this. God's love for you is greater than what you do or haven't done. It's always been there. It's available for you. And although what we do will cause problems with how we relate to God, which we're going to find out in the next few chapters, his love for us, steadfast, greater than what you produce and who you are. In fact, if you tried to produce enough so that God would care about you or like you, you would fall short and it would be worth zero of your time. And yet, so many of us, you know what's so odd? So many of us have experienced the freedom that Jesus comes and offers to us. Came, died, sacrificed, came back to life, gave us freedom. And what we do with that freedom, we turn around and enslave ourselves to the production of this world. We get our value and our worth from the stuff that we do. And it ends up with our devotion 
and a Sabbath. A Sabbath is an opportunity for you to realize I'm getting my devotion from the wrong thing. I'm going to start resting and I'm going to remember that despite the fact that I'm not producing anything right now, I'm not doing anything except just enjoying this moment, that God loves me. Uh, this, uh, this motivation is different than I'd ever heard before. And uh, my wife and I realized we have to start we have to start integrating this into our lives because it's so easy to get wrapped up into what we produce. It's so easy to get defined by our jobs or the things that we care about that are outside of God's realm. And we started finding a way to just rest, we play, and we remember. We're intentional about remembering that God loves us on that day. And it's changing the way we relate to God. So that's, that's one. This is one of the reasons I think God put Sabbath in the middle of this text because he's talking to people who end up seeing ourselves through our production instead of finding our value and our worth in how God sees us and who he made us to be and finding a rest, a beat, Puts us back in touch with that. But I think there's more. Just in case you're wondering, Blair, is it possible for me to be driven? I'm a driven person. I, I want to get things done. I have, I, I have that type of personality. That's not the problem. God made you that way. It's okay. But that rest makes sure that all of that drivenness doesn't turn you into somebody who finds your worth and value in the wrong thing. And resting with God and remembering that he loves you despite all of that driven desire you have keeps you grounded in what's right. Uh, this, is, this is shocking stuff for the nation of Israel who has based their relationship with the gods of Egypt on fear and now it's being switched to a relationship that's going to be based on love. Very difficult to understand. What's the second reason? Well, the second reason, I think, is connected to this idea that it's part of God's nature to rest. What's, what's in God's nature that causes him to rest? And we kind of get a clue of this uh, through Genesis chapter 1, because there's a refrain that's repeated uh, seven times. And the refrain is, it's good. His creation was good. Can I ask you, why wasn't it perfect? I mean, he could have done that, right? He could have made things perfect. We're not talking about his character. We're not talking about his nature. He's perfect there. But God specifically is choosing the word good to describe what he did. Why? Could it be that good is good enough. Could it be that God thought, man, if it's good, that, 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 that that's good? Rabbis taught that what God revealed when he chose to rest at this moment was that God knew when enough was enough and that good was enough and he was willing to rest and enjoy what was good. 
here's the problem. <laughs> You're all creators. You're made in the image of God. You create stuff. Um, whether that's some of you who are artists or musicians or some of you who use spreadsheets or cook or whatever. And in case... In case you're one of the people sitting at the table thinking to yourself right now, oh no, I'm not creative. Listen, don't buy that lie. You were made by God to create things. But here's the problem with us. When we start creating, we worry about it, man. We fret about it. We wonder if it's going to be perfect enough. We don't leave it alone. It's like an artist, right, who's chiseling out this beautiful thing out of a chunk of stone, and they chisel, chisel, chisel. At some point, they have to set it down and say it's done. It's good enough. Because if they keep going, if they keep going, if they're trying to just make it just perfect, they're going to ruin it. And yet, this is how we are with so much of the stuff that flows into our life that God gives us some agency to create with. You have this ability to do these things, and instead of knowing when enough is enough, we worry ourselves, we fret ourselves, we end up depressed about this stuff, we end up with these perfectionist drives in us that cause us to be controlling and insane. Why? Because we haven't learned when enough is enough. I think it's fascinating. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is called out. And most of those are about these interactions that we have with others, but one of them is about the interaction that we have with ourselves, self-control. It's kind of different. Why is it there? Because early in the scriptures, God revealed that he had self-control. In the process of creating, he knew when to stop and say enough was enough. And I think Sabbath becomes one of those moments in our lives where you stop. You stop creating all of that stuff that you're working at and you rest. And instead of being driven crazy by all of the stuff that's not done, not right, I gotta keep going, I don't wanna be lazy, you rest and you experience the good things from God's hand. And you don't get trapped into this never-ending cycle of perfectionism because you're spending time with a God who loves you for who you are, not what you produce, and he doesn't expect the creations of your hand to produce perfection. Just good. Does it stop you from being excellent? No, it doesn't. That's not the whole point of this. The point of what it is what it does to our souls when we're not careful, when we don't have that resting moment where God steps into our lives in a personal way and meets us and says, I never expected that perfection from you. Stop it. Why don't you just enjoy what's good? Why, do you, why don't you enjoy the goodness in this moment? And so as we've started a day of Sabbath, Tracy and I have found ways to, we rest, we play, we remember that God loves us, and we stop trying to find a way to be driven by the stuff that would worry us, fret us, 
It's a, a choice of trust at that point in God. And it takes some time to do. But that's the whole point of a Sabbath is to give you time to decompress from the stuff that we would do to ourselves. You will create. The question is, do you know when enough is enough? Are you willing to follow an example of your creator God in that? So he comes to this nation and he says, man, if you could just, if we could start there. I've talked to people who wonder, where in the world, how do I get to know this God? He's so big. Start by giving a day of rest. Start by remembering that God loves you. Start by unplugging yourself from the production that you've gotten value and worth from and start finding it in God. Because here's what follows. When you start finding your value and worth in God, your devotion follows to him and a relationship forms that will be like nothing you've ever experienced before. And it is the whole point. And if you're interested in adjusting your course toward Christ, of engaging with this God who loves you, then I really think that you should consider finding some kind of time there you can call a Sabbath where you're resting with God, where you're enjoying, where you're playing, where you're remembering, where you're unloading all of that stress from trying to create and you just enjoy God. I believe it's foundational. And I hope um, as you go from here, I don't know, what, what do we do? <sighs> nah, we're going to do it. You're okay. Um, as you go from here, I hope you'll have conversations with each other. You'll start trying to figure out where can we do this? How can we fit this in? By the way, this is going to make sense to you because I, I, I love this. I think it... And uh, we practice it this way because of how it's written in the scriptures, Tracy and I do. Why did God say evening and morning one day? Because when you started resting, it was when he saw the day beginning. Is that important to him? When you finally let go of your production and you gave yourself to rest is when the day really starts with God. And he wants a Sabbath where you're giving him some time and you're sleeping and you're resting and you're doing stuff that you enjoy and you remember his love for you. And you may have to, I, I've already talked with people who are having these battling voices in their heads about this. I can't do that. I can't give up that kind of time. I can't be lazy. I've got to be productive. I'm just telling you, you can't place your value in the stuff that you produce. It is found in God alone. And until you make the space for him, you might not ever experience that. Uh, band, I am going to have you come up and close. Um, can we pray with each other real quick as they come? God, I, I think um, what you have done here is just incredible. You met a group of people in the wilderness who knew nothing but production and you offer them a different way of living. And the truth is, you want to do the same for us. Our culture values production. We do. 
And to be free from that and to find our devotion with you is hard to do. So I ask that you would help us to evaluate what can we do to find space, time, to just rest with you and to remember your love for us to unload all the baggage of the stress that we carry with the production that we have and to just find your love. God, I ask that some relationships would start there. You have more. There's, there's more. But, but you love us, and we need to remember it on a consistent basis. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.